Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you'd like, you can go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. You can also send along an email to me at uh, john at johnwarrenmedia.com or feel free to use our contact form on the website. Your encouragement is much appreciated. I receive notes and comments from time to time, and I am grateful that we get to do this work together. I call it work because we talk about important subjects here. We've, we've been talking about some theology, and we're going to go back to that in a couple of weeks. But, but for the next uh, two weeks, I want to talk about the U.S. Constitution. And I'm not going to uh, talk about it in a, an academic sense. I want to talk about it very practically my students at Circle Christian School, you've heard me talk about them before. If you've been with me from the beginning, with Relentless Truth from the beginning, you've, you've met some of them. And if you, if you haven't, go to johnwarrenmedia.com, look at the uh, library of episodes and go back to the first 20 or so episodes and you'll find several interviews that I did with, with students. Well, you know, Every year, we have a whole new group of students. My, my classes are for 11th and 12th graders, and I have some repeat students from year to year because we, I teach a couple of classes that are only offered every other year. So this year, I have a brilliant group of students, and as always, and I wish I could bottle that energy. I wish I could record, which we, we don't do. Obviously, we have policies against that. Our classes, and I wish you, the Relentless Truth listener, could could hear, could get to know these students and hear them. I, I will, at the end of the school year, with any graduating seniors, offer them the opportunity to come on the podcast. I'm going to do that again. I didn't do it last year. I did it the year before. And I, I kind of regret that because... Uh, they are uh, regret not doing it last year because they they you you just wouldn't believe they they would give you confidence in our country, and I don't mean that in a silly way. It's not uh, I'm not looking to uh, necessarily make them feel good about themselves. You really would feel better about the future of our country if you could uh, spend some time with these amazing young people. Well, we do a thing at this point in the year. We're learning about the U.S. Constitution. We we spend a couple of weeks on the history and the the you know who was doing what at what time and where was John Adams and and where where was uh, Thomas Jefferson and and we we talk about their their lives. Uh, we get to know Alexander Hamilton and others, key figures. We don't have a lot of time for that, but we really set the stage and and what we what we learn is that as late as 1775, as late as the summer of 1775, these colonists didn't necessarily want to separate from England. They saw themselves as British, as British citizens. You probably know that. Well, uh, there's a series 
and I, I can't remember, it might be on HBO. A student recommended it to me on, on John Adams. It's a, I want to say it's an eight or 10 part series, but very good. It will help you. Uh, if you don't like to read about history, it will help you learn a little history uh, while being somewhat entertained. But wow, is it historically accurate and really well done. The actors, a couple of the actors are well known and it's produced well, directed well. I think you'd like it. So having said that, we're right in the middle of the Constitution now. And if you're familiar with Article 1, Article 1 is about the Congress, the legislature. Article 2 is about the uh, president, the uh, chief executive, and Article 3 about the judiciary. Well, today I want to talk about Article 1 with you for a few minutes. And again, not in an academic way. I want to see what you know. You might want to take this episode and play a little game with your family or friends. If you're a dork like me, these kinds of things are fun. And these these questions I'm going to ask are, are not designed to trip you up. They're designed to make us think. And, and in the case of this particular episode, I want us to think about how we absolutely shred the Constitution. By shred, I mean ignore. By shred, I mean disregard. By shred, I mean take authority that doesn't belong to us in the government in various ways. And this isn't one of those right-wing, you know, conspiracy theory whack kind of episodes. This is, this is just real. This is, this is something you could get CNN and Fox News to agree on. This is, this is happening in our country, has been happening. So let's warm up with a couple of easy questions. And I asked my students this, these questions this week, and I, I think you'll like this. What is the more perfect union in order to form a more perfect union is a line from the preamble. What does that mean? More perfect union. In addition to being bad grammar, more perfect, what does it mean? If it's already perfect, English teachers will tell us, that or people who just know how to write that you don't say more perfect anything well this is a little bit of a political statement isn't it it's a reference to the articles of confederation you see we had just a few years earlier than this 1787 ratifying writing and ratifying of the u.s constitution yes it was 1787 not 1776 we're in this period where for a couple of years we had this document called the Articles of Confederation. This, there were several failed attempts to unite us as a country. The Declaration of Independence declared our independence from England, but it was kind of a breakup letter to King George III. It was not really a governing document. And before you cringe and, and you know go look it up and get angry at me, look at it. It's, uh, it's got some wonderful tenets of governance over many, many centuries are found in, in that document. Thomas Jefferson and others, primarily Jefferson, did a great job of writing that document, but it doesn't really describe any kind of union, any kind of country. It just says that it uses the term these United States, but it doesn't talk about how they're to be united. So along come the Articles of Confederation, and they're supposed to accomplish this. And, and in this particular time with these 13 states, 
you kind of, and with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, radical change, you know this, if you run a company or an organization, you, you, sometimes you have to take baby steps. And that's what they did. The Articles of Confederation were a means to the end. It's a, it's a fun study if you're, if you're interested in, in, in that, that kind of thing. You can kind of see the baby steps if you read the Articles of Confederation. So this, this notion of federalism, that is combining these states. Don't, don't let federalism trouble you. It's just combining the states we, with, with maintaining states' rights but also having a, a united states, a, a federal government, a federation, a group effort. And the Articles of Confederation attempted this, but they did not address a very important matter. That matter is funding. That matter is money. That matter is taxation. So here we have this union and it's kind of described and the Articles of Confederation are very helpful. They're written by many of the same smart men who ended up writing the Constitution, but they don't address money. They don't really address taxation very well. Now, we're fighting a war, this war for independence, and, and we had to congeal around that. And then Along comes a guy named Alexander Hamilton, and you might have you might have seen Hamilton, the the musical, or you might have read about Alexander Hamilton. Brilliant guy, apparently, and 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 feisty, and um, kind of you know, in my humble opinion, never met a loan he didn't want the government to make, and he comes up with this plan, and he had some help from James Madison and. And if I start naming names, I'll leave your favorite out. But uh, Jay, Madison, Adams, Jefferson, Washington, uh, and and some others who aren't as well known, like Jacob Shallis and others come to mind. But it's funny because Hamilton sort of did a circuit where he went to the, the colonies, the, the 13 states, and and he cut deals. And what he basically said is, we will take on the debt of the states. The federal government will take on the debt of the states. Well, that was very appealing to some states because they had some debt from the war. And, you know, it's like any, I always talk to my students about this. It's like any consortium, you know, it's, it's, it's never quite fair. And I, I think of the, I talked about this in class this week. I, I think of the the student loan forgiveness thing. You know, I know lots of former circle students who, who, who suck it up and find a way. And I mean, I'm sure some of them have to take loans uh, to get through college, uh, student loans, but many of them work hard. Their families work hard. They get scholarships. They take uh, dual enrollment courses. Uh, you know, you know how this works. You probably do this in your family. And, and, and I'm thinking, wow, the federal government's just going to take all this debt and poof, it's going to be gone. Well, that's not fair. You've heard these arguments. Well, that's not fair to the student who went to trade school to become an electrician or a plumber or paid their own way. What do they get? They get nothing. So I, I, I just don't like the idea of the government doing that kind of thing. And if you study history, Alexander Hamilton, I, you know, I'm not blaming him for everything that has gone wrong with debt in our country, but he, he certainly, he started the first central bank and he certainly liked this notion of federal spending and federal debt. And taking on the debt of the states didn't bother him one bit. Read the Federalist Papers and you'll get 
you'll get an idea of of why Patrick Henry objected so much. He he Patrick Henry said he smelled a rat and refused to be a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. Well, this notion of more perfect union is a reference to the Articles of Confederation. And and perhaps even, you know, we can't know this, I think, but perhaps even other attempts at the unification of the country, other attempts at federalism. There were several. There were there was an Albany, New York Congress and King George assembled it and and Ben Franklin ended up using it as a kind of an organizing tool for the colonies. And there were other efforts along the way that you're probably familiar with. But this notion of more perfect union is interesting. Well, that's just a fun little trivia fact, but we need to get into get into the weeds here. Let's let's try this one. What is the age and term of office and any other qualifications for serving in the House and the Senate? You know, we have this thing called the bicameral Congress. And adults uh, who don't know Latin, let me tell you what that means. It just means two chambers. We have 435 House members, 100 voting House members, 100 senators, uh, two for each state in the Senate. You probably know these things. And the House is divided by, uh, by population, by districts. We, we, we apportion the districts. And Article 1 of the Constitution talks about this. Well, the, the age to run for the House is 25 years old. The age for the Senate is 30. And there's some other qualifications. You, you had to have been a U.S. citizen for seven years to run for the House, nine for the Senate. And you uh, also have to live in the state that you represent. Now, we all think, well, of course you do. Well, that's because we've grown up in a, a country where that's true. That, what if they hadn't done that? What if they hadn't said that? There's another what if in the preamble. What if they hadn't said, and your posterity? What if they hadn't referenced us in that document? It would have died like a lot of other documents after, oh, I don't know, a generation or two. It's the most enduring national governing document for any state, sovereign state in the world. It's a... Is it, is it full of problems, and do we have some offensive, shameful parts of our history? Absolutely, yes. Did 25 of those guys own slaves? Yes, they did. 25 of the 55 or so who attended, 39 of them ended up signing. So, so a significant number were slave owners. But in any case, 25 years old for the, for the House, 30 for the Senate, and House members serve for two years, so they're elected every two years. You, you may not realize that, but... They're running for office as soon as they get in office, as soon as they take the oath of office. The Republicans and the Democrats each rent an office building down the street from the Capitol, not far away at all, and they dial for dollars and try to try to line their pockets, their campaign pockets, so they can run again. They also take advantage of something called franking privilege, which is sending us documents that Usually they're just these huge postcards that talk about how wonderful they are while they're in office. Did you know they can do that as long as they're not campaigning technically and they know they've got teams of lawyers to make these judgment calls. They can do so at the taxpayer's expense. They have a budget. And so senators serve for six years, House members for two, and the Senate terms are staggered so that so that only a third of the Senate roughly is running for election every two years. This way, we don't have this wholesale change of the legislative branch every two years like we would 
if, well, we'd have it every six years for the Senate and every two years for the House. So we, we live with that change for the House. Well, that, that came about, that, that whole House and Senate thing that we've become very comfortable with. And, and in fact, almost every state, I think there are two states who don't have this model implemented at the state house in state government. And, and this came about because of a great compromise. And there are several compromises, and depending on where you want to split the hair, it's, it's, this one is, is what we would call the bicameral compromise, the one that resulted in two chambers. This was a fight between, and I, I mean a shouting match, where, where delegates threatened to leave and so on, where the large states wanted to be wanted their representation to be determined by population and the small states wanted equal representation and so this bicameral compromise where everybody gets two senators and 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 everybody cuts up the 435 house districts this this compromise saved the US constitution interestingly so there's another compromise i want to talk about that is is far more sensitive uh, that that one that one was a mess, and what what a brilliant idea! The, the there's a difference. You can read Article Two of the uh, Constitution and and uh, read about the president, and and in the, in that article, along with Article One in the in the section that describes the Senate, and and uh, that that section I believe is Section Three of Article One. Section Two of Article One describes the House and some other some other things, but you can, you can read those articles and you see that the Senate has a special relationship with the president. It's called the advice and consent role. And senators think of themselves, and you can read the quotes over the years, they're, they're a more regal body, a more, they're more important for, for several reasons, but the primary one is, well, they make more money and they serve longer, and there are two from each state, and they and, and your two senators represent your entire state. Those of you in other countries, my apology for all the U.S. references. You might find it interesting, though. But, but the Senate is more important primarily because of this advice and consent role with the president. The Senate alone can impeach the president and remove him or her from office. The House can vote on impeachment, but then it just gets referred to the Senate, and the Senate actually can remove the president from office with a two-thirds vote. So this other compromise, though, this, this next one is the three-fifths compromise. And that, that is referenced, uh, just, just so you know, because I, our press loves to talk about this, politicians love to talk about it, but that is, is really a reference that you will see in Article One, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution. And it's actually in the third paragraph, and it, what it says is representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned, shall be apportioned among the several states. So, so they're talking about representation in Congress, and they're talking about the distribution of tax revenues that go to the federal government and get distributed to the states. And this is... This is written at a level where everybody can read it and understand it, most everybody. And anyway, it says, it says uh, according to their respective numbers. So they're talking about the population of the states, but they go on and get themselves in a bit of trouble here. Here's what, here's what it says, and then I'll tell you how they got there. 
which shall be determined by adding the whole number to the whole number of free persons. So the white people, including women, although women couldn't vote and weren't part of the Constitutional Convention. And then there's a comma and it says, including those bound to service for a term of years. And then there's another comma and excluding Indians not taxed. And another comma, three fifths of all other persons. So here's what we need to talk about today to to address this section well. This is the three-fifths compromise is what it's called. And you will hear some in the media who take an activist position on one political side or the other who will say what a disgrace it is that we reference slaves, that's who we're talking about when we say others, as three-fifths of a person. And I agree that is shameful and it is a disgrace. But it's not what you think it is. You see, this three-fifths compromise was a battle between the slave states and the non-slave states. You can imagine, since we're talking about the apportionment of money and Congress seats, that the slave states wanted to count slaves in this, we're describing the U.S. Census is what we're describing. And the Constitution goes on. I stopped reading for the sake of time, but it goes on in that section to describe the census being taken in three years from the, from the date of the Constitution and then every 10 years thereafter. So on the decade, our next one will be uh, uh, 2030, uh, we will have a census, God willing. That is the plan. That is what is prescribed in the, in the Constitution. So that's when we count the people. Now, this, this requirement, this three-fifths requirement, has been changed by an amendment. It's been addressed by a couple of amendments, actually. And so this is no longer the way we do this, obviously. We don't have slaves either. And, 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 but it's important to talk about this. The, the free states, the non-slave states, wanted to emancipate the slaves, didn't they? You know that. They saw slavery as horrible. The slave states considered slaves, actual people from Africa for the most part, to be property and not humans. So let's get that straight. That that was going on in our country. However, the slave states wanted to count the slaves as whole people. So this constitution, had they had their way, would not have this controversial controversial three fifths provision there would have been no compromise it would have just said you know and adding others not three-fifths of others and there are some today who 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 get all wrapped around their axle when they talk about this as if our founders set out to evaluate slaves as three-fifths of a person that slave states value them at zero it's important to know that the non-slave states valued them as people. However, in this battle, they did not want to count the slaves for apportionment of monies, tax monies, and congressional seats. Neither would you or I had we been involved at this time. You know why? Because they would have thereby been supporting slavery. Isn't that something? So the non-slave, the free states, the states who wanted to emancipate the slaves and recognize them as people, 
didn't want to count them in the census as long as they were slaves because they did not want to endorse or, or, or perpetuate slavery. Of course they didn't. And so this great compromise was driven by slave states saying, we want to, we want to get as much credit for them as possible. And so that's where this three-fifths compromise came from. And I thought you should know because our, our press doesn't understand it. I'm not even sure some of our Congress understands it. It's important to explain it. This is, this is a dark part of our history. It's, I called it shameful and offensive for real. It is, but not for the reason that people cite. Oh my goodness, we only thought of slaves as three-fifths of a person. No, over half our country, the slave states, thought of them as totally worthless as property not as people. So it's worse than you think. Far worse than you think. Now, I'm not one who is in favor of destroying monuments and trying to rewrite our history. I mean, you can't rewrite our history unless you want to just blow up the entire Constitution and start over, and there are some people who want to do that. That's dumb. It has been an enduring document, but our history is documented right here. You can amend it all you want, And the amendment process is difficult, but we've amended it. We've corrected it, but it's still right here in black and white in our history, in our constitution. You remove all the monuments in this country, every last one of them, and, and, and you won't solve this history. You, this history is our history and, and it is, it is shameful. It is offensive. It is not. I'm not arguing it's a good thing. I'm not saying suck it up and get over the monuments. I, I understand what it might be like to ride or walk past a monument. If, you're, if your family had slaves in your lineage, and, and, and I, I get that, and we ought to be sensitive. We ought to write history the right way. But anyway, that's, that's all I'm going to say about monuments. I, I, you know, it's not a hill I want to die on. It's a, it's a, it, I just think it's a, it's a silly argument. It, it, and it's not silly if it's in your neighborhood and it offends you. I, I, I am sensitive to that, but, but we can't rewrite our history by taking down some monuments. Our history is our history. We should learn from our history. There is much to learn. The, these people, and, and I, I am, I am not ever going to condone anything about slavery. So don't read that into what I'm about to say. Life was rough in these colonies. That does not excuse any bad behavior. But British soldiers, there was tension with the British soldiers. There was economic tension. They, they, they had dental and health issues of all kinds. And, and life was hard, very hard, much different than it is today. We are spoiled rotten today. Don't, don't tell me you, you long for the good old days when you go to Colonial Williamsburg and see some of the shops. I don't think you mean that. So that's, that's the, the three-fifths compromise. That's, a, that, that's kind of a big deal, and it's important for us to understand it. So let's move on. Let's, that's, I'm going to talk about two more things. We, we talked about the bicameral compromise. I, I want to explain the filibuster. The filibuster is a, a, 
a silly, you can talk all night in the Senate only, not in the House. So remember, Congress is the big body with 535 members. Senate has 100, House has 435 voting members. And and the, the filibuster only happens in the Senate. At Ted Cruz, if, if, you've, if, you've, if you think what I'm about to say is absurd, Google Ted Cruz's filibuster. And you'll, you'll see that it happens sometimes. You can fatigue the other side in an argument over legislation. You can fatigue them into submission of some kind by getting control of the Senate floor through parliamentary procedure, through procedural steps, through using the Senate's procedures. And you can then talk for hours. I believe Ted Cruz went on for 16 hours. It might've been longer, might've been 20. He read green eggs and ham from the Senate floor. It's a silly little boys club kind of maneuver that I don't like. I think you should be able to sit down at a negotiating table, have a give and take process. Have, have we not, have we lost all decency and the ability to talk about facts? Do we have to just ra- ra- rattle our sabers at each other all the time can we not just have civil discourse without getting shamed in social media for meeting with the other side my goodness the filibuster is just a joke makes no don't don't write me and tell me how filibuster solved something in the early 1900s i uh okay it's just dumb well there's another clause that was really well intended and when we read it in class, my, my, my students actually can't believe it's there. It says, it's called the elastic clause. It's right at the end of section eight. And, and section eight is the, is the section that enumerates the powers of Congress. It starts with, section eight starts with, with the Congress shall have power to, and it goes on, lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide, and it goes on and on. And then at the end, there's a little paragraph that says to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Did you catch that? This is, this is also called the Necessary and Proper Clause. We call it the Elastic Clause because Congress has used it again and again to stretch these powers. But notice what it said. To make all laws which shall be necessary and proper, not words I would have chosen, but okay, for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. You see... There's a doctrine, and if you've been to law school, you, you may or may not, depending on the quality of the school, you may or may, may not have learned this. You probably did. You might remember it when I say it. This, this doctrine that I'm about to talk about is the enumerated powers doctrine. It says Congress can't do things outside of the powers that are enumerated in the Constitution. So you get into this whole philosophical discussion about whether the Constitution is living and dead, and I'm not going to go into all that again, but it, 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 it's, it's really a, a matter of does the Constitution morph naturally somehow based on the will of the people over the years without being amended, or 
are these powers enumerated and do they mean something? <laughs> it's really funny. I, 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 I want to, I don't want to spend all day on this, <laughs> but, but this, this section eight, this, this, this Congress can do whatever is necessary and proper to, for carrying into execution, the foregoing powers that, that language is very critical to understand, but, but this section eight enumerates all the powers of Congress. They can coin money. They can punish counterfeiting. They can promote science and arts. They can establish courts and other things. They can punish piracies. They can declare war. How about that? Well, would you believe that Congress hasn't declared war in the United States? Look it up. Since World War II. How many wars have we been in? Korea, I'm probably going to forget one or two small ones, but Korea, Vietnam, the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War in Iraq, Afghanistan. I remember during the Reagan years, we, we had a little skirmish with Grenada and there, I, I might be missing another one or two. Congress never voted to, to declare war. Yet this is a duty of Congress. And yet they allow the president through some procedural maneuvers to avoid declaring war, but take us to war. And if you've lost loved ones or you see on the news, you've watched the body count or the injuries or, or watched the movies uh, uh, about our snipers and Black Hawk Down and all the others, you know that these are costly conflicts, they're war, they, they involve war. And so why does Congress stretch the Constitution using the Elastic Clause to do some things that are outside of these enumerated powers in Section 8, but then they shirk their duty to declare war? Well, guess what? They're political. They want to get reelected. They're happy to defer to the president. And the president's happy to step in front of them and take the heat. I wouldn't want to do that if I was one person. And I think this it's designed this way so that 535 people vote. I think that's what we should do before we send our young men and women into harm's way. I think it's unthinkable to do it the way that we do it, where one person makes the call. I understand the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State and, and the CIA and all the others and and, and uh, the military intelligence apparatus and all that stuff. I understand everybody weighs in. The president has lots of counselors and attorneys and all the rest. I know it's not just one person, but at the end of the day, it is one person, isn't it? Constitution doesn't, doesn't contemplate that. And, and, and one more thing I'll just mention in this regard, and there, there's so much more to talk about here. This is such a rich topic that, that we're going to do our next episode on, on some more uh, constitution concepts that I think you'll enjoy. It'll be a little lighter than this one, but uh, I happen to like the Affordable Care Act. I don't like what America's insurance companies did to us, health insurance companies did to us. And yeah, I, I you know I know some of you just are just fine with it and just loathe the Affordable Care Act. Well, I I, I survived stage three colon cancer uh, from almost twenty years ago now. And, and you know what I learned when I decided to leave banking and do my own thing and start my own company? I was told by a Florida Blue, a Blue Cross uh, agent, 
uh, representative, I was told that, well, we have to do a rider that excludes your abdomen because it hasn't, you haven't been free of cancer for 10 years back then. And I thought, what am I going to do? Are you kidding? Oh yeah, we can't insure your entire body. So I had an incentive to go get back in a group policy somewhere and, and almost did so. But then along comes right at the right moment, by God's grace, the Affordable Care Act, which forces them to cover us people who have pre-existing illnesses. I didn't really cost them very much. I pay lots of high premiums and haven't, by God's grace, had health problems, and I'm thankful for that. So that's the Affordable Care Act, and it happened by stretching this Constitution. So I don't like the, the methodology. I could talk to you for hours about the Department of Education if you read these enumerated powers, which we don't have time to do in this format. In Section 8 of Article 1 of the Constitution, you won't see a reference, direct or indirect, to the United States federal government being involved in education. You'll see, you know what you'll see if you read this section? The states have lots of rights. That's what you see. States' rights was a big deal. This federalism didn't take all the rights away from the states. The federal government does have the right, though, to regulate interstate commerce, and that's what they hung their hat on, in short, for the Affordable Care Act. Parts of the Affordable Care Act were shot down by the Supreme Court, but that particular element survived, and so here we are. I happen to be grateful for that particular act. I don't think I'm myopic or selfish in that regard. I think it does make sense for our country. Insurance and healthcare are complex issues. So next week, we'll talk more about the U.S. Constitution. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. It is important to know and appreciate this document. We'll talk about some of the key concepts in this document that I haven't mentioned today next week. So come back then. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcast. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. It is a blessing to be with you. I am thankful that God is on the throne, that nothing, Romans 8, nothing will separate us from him and his love, his agape, unconditional love for us. Until then. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.